It's great, to, it's great to be together, and we're making our way through this summer, and um, we've been spending time in the Gospel of Mark this uh, summer in these recent weeks, and uh, we've been looking at the early chapters. The, remember, the Gospel of Mark is, is action-packed. It's moving quick. There's no, there's no beating around the bush with, with Mark. Most believe that he's recounting stories that were told to him by the Apostle Peter, that uh, these are eyewitness accounts that have been passed on through the years and on to Mark uh, firsthand, actually, from, from Peter. And, and so not a lot of flowery details, just, just, just the facts. Peter was very, uh, very concerned about getting, obviously, this message of Jesus on to the next generations and wanted to be sure that Mark had all the details and had them, had them right. So early in, these, early in this book, in these early chapters, we're seeing, we're seeing Jesus just break onto the scene. We're seeing him. It's a, it's a pretty powerful arrival. And, and because Jesus isn't just breaking onto the scene, we have to understand, but, but that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking onto the scene. The, the reign of God that, that has now intervened and interrupted the flow of history that, that has come to begin to set all things right has, has come in the person of Jesus. And, and in the life of Jesus and in the interactions that we're watching him have with people, we're watching a new way of being and a new way of doing begin to emerge. And it's a new way of doing and being that still continues today. And we're believing that this, that this valiant Jesus, this heroic-like figure who, who will not let anything get in his way of accomplishing the plans and purposes that God has for him and for all creation, that this valiant, heroic Jesus is still on the job today through the presence of his Holy Spirit living and leading us into the same plans and purposes. So today we're going to look at another passage this morning. Um, we, we've watched this Jesus heal people on the Sabbath. We've watched him stand up to religious leaders. We've watched him calm the wind and the waves with a simple word. And again, we watch him in this text today um, live valiantly, courageously, boldly, into the, into, the, into the will of God for him and for us. And we open our hearts to it. So Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And we're going to begin at verse 21 and read to the end of the chapter, um, verse 43. And it's a really great passage. It's like, it's like a two for one. You get two stories for the price of one. It's, I mean, who knew what a deal you were going to get? when you? I mean, great expectations for this worship service, Trish. I mean, right from the start, Two stories for the price of one. Let's stand together as I read this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43. And at the end, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and you can give your thanks to God. Jesus got into the boat again. Now, just quick, 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 quick. But remember, last week, he took the boat to the other side. And he left from the Jewish region of Capernaum down to the the region of the Gerasenes, and there he performed an amazing miracle, uh, freeing the, 
Gerasene demoniac, as he's known, uh, from, from the power of evil and freeing him to a life of faith. And, and now Jesus is leaving here in verse 21. He's leaving the region of the Gerasenes, and he's going back, most likely, to Capernaum, back from, from Gentile territory back to, to Jewish territory. What's really cool is that be, though he left, the, the mission to the Gentiles was, was not over because he left the, the man who had been healed right where he was to give witness to the power of God in that place. But now Jesus has returned. He likes getting in the boat. And he got on the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him, My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him, and all the people followed, of course, crowding around him. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I'll be healed. Immediately the bleeding stopped. And she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. And Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. So he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? The disciples said to him, Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. And while he was still speaking to her, Messengers arrived from the house of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, Your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just have faith. And Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and asked, Why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. The crowd laughed at him, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. And then he told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. It always comes back to something to eat. I mean, what's the deal with this? Jesus knew what a 12-year-old, you know, a near teenager really needed after being saved you know, from death, just give her a snack. I mean, come on. This is what this girl really needs at this moment. Give her a snack, Mom. Dad, step, step to it. 
Last week, I, I shared with you about Eric Liddell, just a wonderful hero in the faith. And I just thought it would be fun to sort of continue along with that, that theme of thinking about some valiant heroes from, from Christian history. And my mind, maybe it was because I was reading this text over and over that was dealing with some, a, a, a woman and a young girl. My mind kept coming back to Corey Ten Boom this week. Some of you are familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom, and I should have Danny pronounce her name in Dutch. It would be much more impressive, I'm sure. But uh, she, she was a, a Dutch watchmaker, and she was a, a believer, a follower of Jesus. And Tim Boom, along with her family, opened their home as a refuge, as, a, as her book would be later called, as a hiding place for Jewish people and members of the Dutch resistance movement who were being hunted during World War II by the Nazis. Um, her book, again, The Hiding Place, became a movie. I remember watching it when I was a kid. I, it came out in 1976, so I probably saw it when I was about seven years old. And uh, it, it, it struck me even then. Maybe some of you have seen that or, or read uh, her book. Speaking of the conviction that led her and this family to this, this life. Again, both Jewish people and members of the Dutch resistance to the, the Nazi movement were welcome in their home. Soon, this resistance sent an architect to the Ten Boom home to design and to build a secret space, a secret room adjacent to Corey's room where they would be able to hide these refugees from those who came to seek their lives. It was complete even with an alert buzzer to warn the refugees, the Jewish people, to, to jump into the room at, at, uh, as soon as possible when the Gestapo would come looking for them. And during 1943 and 1944, there were typically as many as seven people additional to the Ten Boom family living in the home with them illegally. Others on the run, we're told, would stay for a few days sometimes or just for a few hours trying to stay ahead of those who were chasing them until another safe house, a safe place could be found for them. And much of Corey Ten Boom's time during those years was spent simply caring for those who were in hiding, securing food ration cards. There's one story told about her where she would go to get the ration cards and, and, and the person who was handing them out was someone who she knew and when she went to speak and give the number of ration cards she was deserving of, which would have been five, instead out of her mouth came the words, 100, I need 100 food rationing cards. And the man gave them to her. Amazing stories about her care for them, but it was on February 28, 1944, that the family was betrayed. The Nazi secret police raided their home. The, they set a trap and waited throughout the day, and they seized everyone who came and went to their home on that day. Over 20 people, including Corey, and most of the family were taken into custody. But although they systematically searched the house, the secret police could not find the two Jewish men, the two Jewish women, and the two members of the Dutch underground who were safely hidden in the hiding place. And the house remained under guard for days to come, but the resistance was able to get these refugees out 
just two days later, they'd managed to stay very quiet <laughs> and managed to survive with, no, with very little bread or, or food or, or water. They were taken to new safe houses. Three of the, the Jewish refugees survived the war. One of the underground workers was killed, but the others survived. Members of the Ten Boom family, as you know, some of you know the story, were sent to different Nazi prisons and concentration camps, and most of them did not make it out. There they continued to share the love of Jesus with their fellow prisoners, and Corey Ten Boom was the only one to make it out of the concentration camps alive, securing her release by what she would later speak of as a clerical error just 15 days before the other women in her concentration camp were, were executed. She began to live like she realized her life was a gift. It surely was. And for the next 30 plus years, her ministry took her to over 60 nations in the world where she simply spoke of the love and the forgiveness and the goodness of God that had prompted her that had rescued her, that had been a part of who she was. Again, just the tip of the iceberg here in these moments, speaking about this amazing woman, this amazing person, but, but one who, who lived out a valiant life. Not, not because she was, again, making this up on her own as she went along, but because she was simply following the one who had grabbed hold of her life, who had changed her from the inside out, who had valiantly rescued her, and who had given her a model by which to live. Here was another willing to look beyond her own comfort, her own well-being, so that she might be faithful to the cause of Jesus around the world, and as a servant to all of those in need around her. She didn't, she didn't start out trying to be valiant. She didn't start out trying to be a hero. She just started out trying to be like Jesus. And I think this is so key for all of us. If, if we were to come to the end of this sermon series somehow and think that, you know, Pastor James is sending us out to be valiant, courageous you know, heroes for Jesus. Well, in some senses, absolutely, that's what we're hopefully wanting to be and become. But it doesn't, you know, we don't just suddenly, suddenly get like a, a shot of magic powers or some sort of just overnight that doesn't just happen. It happens as we simply model our lives after this one who has lived this kind of life for us and before us. And this is what Corey Ten Boom had done. In our passage, again, Mark has skillfully woven these two stories, two for the, the, the price of one together. These stories of healing, the healing of the bleeding woman, the raising of Jairus' daughter. One story is interrupted, it's, it's an interruption, let's be honest, by the intrusion of another story, which is then completed before we get to go back to the other story to finish it up. Commentators actually call this a, you're going to like this, a Markin sandwich. Mark does this at other places as well. He starts one, he gets your attention, he puts another one in there, and then he goes back to the other one. And in, in some ways, it's just a sort of maybe a way of kind of keeping your interest, like what's going on? I want to follow this story. But in other ways, 
Scholars look at this and say he's not only keeping our interest, he's actually wanting us to see themes that are reinforced and supported by one another in both stories so that we might get sort of a, a double dose of the truth that is being proclaimed in the life of Jesus and in these stories. The, the flavor on this Mark and Sandwich, as one writer put it, adds zest. The, the outer story adds zest to the inner one. The taste of the inner one is meant to permeate the outer one. It's, it's a Mark and Sandwich. It, it, it tastes good as we as we read it, as we study it, and the dramatic effect is remarkable. All sorts of observations, perhaps. Even as we read it, maybe you've heard it before, but as we read it again, perhaps, and you heard it again, new observations as you place yourself into the story, perhaps watching and observing, maybe even making yourself to be one of the characters in the story, and it becomes alive to us. And the interweaving stories, again, encourage us to interpret one in light of the other and see where the connections might, might lie. On first glance, it, it could be admitted that there are a lot of differences between these two stories, that, that there's maybe not a whole lot in common between the two, especially the, the, the two main characters, one Jairus, a, a synagogue leader, a, a male, the, the other an unnamed female, likely actually excluded from the synagogue because of her physical condition. One one, the synagogue president, the leader, and one, a woman unnamed. We never know who she is, her name, her identity, excluded from the very synagogue that, of which Jairus was likely the leader. One approaches from the front, falling on his knees in desperation, calling upon Jesus. The other sneaks up from behind, perhaps falling to her knees to reach for the hem of Jesus' garment, only then coming before Jesus when she's called out. And it appears that Jesus is just like a teacher who's just going to wait. Have you ever heard a teacher say that? I'll wait. Or a parent, I'll wait. Who who threw that? I'll wait. And it was like she was, he, it seemed like, you know, he's going to wait. And only then does she come and fall on her knees one comes on behalf of another, Jairus coming desperately on behalf of his, his dying daughter. One comes on behalf of herself, desperate with her own personal situation. Lots of differences between these two stories, these two characters, but lots of similarities as well. Both are obviously in desperate need of the healing touch of, of God. They, they both have an active faith that is prompting them, moving them towards this encounter with with the Jesus, this one who they hoped would bring healing to their life. For both the last 12 years, for both of these main characters, the last 12 years had been very significant. For Jairus, he, he, he had cherished these 12 years uh, with his, his beautiful daughter. Those who have kids know a little bit about what Jairus was feeling in this moment and the 12 years that he had cherished. Those of you who have daughters in particular, those dads who have daughters in particular, and specifically know perhaps the sense, or granddaughters, maybe some of you even who are around the age of this daughter. Twelve years, the woman, on the other hand, had suffered. Jairus celebrating twelve years of life with his daughter, the woman suffering through twelve years of what appears to be a, a, a woman disease, a gynecological 
disorder that had plagued her. It, it wasn't just it wasn't just like bleeding. It was bleeding that had left her ritually impure. It was bleeding that had made her uh, isolated and removed from Jewish religious and social life. It was bleeding that had left her as an outcast, left her likely with no children, with no husband, with family who had only turned their back on her. This was a woman who for 12 years had known nothing but pain. 12 years, significant for both parties. Both, again, with a faith that was bringing them to this moment. Jesus had returned to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. It strikes me that at least twice in those opening verses of our account, we're told that the crowd was pressing in. They were there to meet him. They had expectations. They had hopes. They had anticipations of how it was that Jesus might act among them. Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, an interesting title and position of one who would come to Jesus. That just strikes me, especially in this context where just in two chapters previous, Jesus had been having debates, let's say, with the religious leaders of the synagogue. Jairus was likely a lay leader in the synagogue, perhaps more responsible for the organization and administration. But it's interesting, is it not, that a synagogue leader, one who was affiliated with those who were probably not too high on Jesus in these moments, who had been sort of butting heads with them, this one would come to Jesus. Perhaps Jairus himself had had some arguments or some debates with Jesus. Perhaps there had been a little bit of tension between these two, even to this point. But it's clear that when desperation sets in, Jairus had seen something in Jesus that prompted him to, to know and to somehow believe that this, this man, among anyone else that he might have gone to, would be the one who would have answers, would have options. So he falls before him. Whatever their relationship had been to this point, he'd evidently seen enough to know that Jesus was one who could be trusted. And Jesus doesn't hesitate. This strikes me as very interesting. He, doesn't hesitate. he goes with him. But before they can even take a few steps, the crowd is pressing in on him and Jesus suddenly realizes that the language that he uses is so intriguing. He suddenly realized that, that power has gone out from him. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But power has gone out from him. And he looks at his disciples and he says, who touched me? And his disciples again look at him like he's crazy. And they say, Jesus, do you see the crowd around us? What do you mean, who touched me? And, and part of their irritation could have been not only with the fact that he's saying, who touched me in the midst of a big crowd, but with the fact that they were on a mission, if he had forgotten, to go and heal a dying child. Jesus, we don't know who touched you. There's a big crowd of people. And by the way, there's a dying child who needs your touch. And we're hurrying to get there. And you're asking us, Jesus, we don't even know what to do with you. Who touched me? Who touched me? I felt the power go out from me. And he waits. <laughs> and he looks around. And I can only imagine the pierce of his look on the eyes of the people around him. And 99.9% .9 of them, or however you want to do the math, 
realized that he was looking for someone, but they knew it wasn't them. Maybe they hoped it was them. Are you looking at me? But there was one in the crowd who knew that exactly who he was looking for. And she knew that there was no escaping this piercing glance, this piercing glare. And so she steps forward, acknowledging that it was her, acknowledging what she had done. It had been 12 years. She'd been to a lot of doctors. She'd attempted lots of different treatments. She was left not, not with nothing, but worse off than she had been before. This had been a long journey for her. But now, having heard reports, not even having seen Jesus necessarily in action, but having heard reports, she had determined her course of action. She knew she didn't belong. She knew if anybody saw her who knew her, that they would immediately send her out of that place. How dare she in her condition get so close to so many people, potentially rendering them ritually impure as well if she were to touch them in her condition. She knew it was a long shot that she could ever even get close enough to Jesus to see what might happen. She knew that even touching his garment, though it was a popularly held belief, was no was no guarantee that her illness would be healed, but now her dreams had been fulfilled. Her prayers had been answered, and with a grateful and trembling heart, she comes before Jesus to acknowledge that, in fact, it was her. It was she who had received the power from Jesus, received the greatest gift that he could give into her life. Of course, The healing of the woman results in the delay of Jesus and the death of the young girl. And when the messengers arrive to tell Jairus that his daughter has died, Jesus just puts his head down, looks at Jairus and says, believe even harder than you were before and keeps going. And I imagine Jairus in that moment. I believed. Then I saw Jesus heal this woman. Now my situation has grown much darker And yet I'm being invited to believe that's what I'll do. And when they arrive, Jesus sees the mourners, likely professional mourners in the day, who had been hired to weep and to wail and to begin the funeral process for this young girl. And Jesus looks at him and says, just get out of here. And he grabs the parents and he grabs his critical core of disciples and they go in and he speaks words that... Interestingly, from Peter to Mark to us, were untranslated into the Greek that the rest of the, uh, of the book would be written in, but left in the common Aramaic that they would have spoken, that Jesus would have spoken to the girl. It's as if Peter just wants, uh, it's as if Peter just wants these, the, the Mark and the readers from then on to know that Jesus was not speaking any magical incantation. It was as if Peter and Mark wanted them to know that this was not a, a, like a, a formula that was being spoken in that moment. Instead, it was just common, ordinary speech. This is how Jesus acts in this moment. And he simply says, little girl, get up. And mom, give her something to eat. It's not, it's not coincidental that Jesus is on the move in this passage. I don't know if you noticed it, but early on, he arrives on the boat, he gets out, the crowd's there, they move along, he's walking, Jairus is there, he asks him, they keep moving, he stops, then they move again. There's a lot of movement in this passage. Jesus is on the move, and 
It's important for us, I think, to recognize that the passage speaks to us dramatically about the ways that Jesus is on the move in the world today. And the ways that Jesus is inviting us to be on the move with him in the world today. And the first that I notice in particular is the way that Jesus moves forward in compassion. You see the compassion that he extends to the, all the parties involved in this situation all of those that he comes into contact with. It would have been easy if I were Jesus, when Jairus shows up in my face, I just got off the boat. You're one of my opponents, actually, from the synagogue. You're the one who was talking bad about me last week. You're the one who's kind of getting in the way a little bit of what I'm trying to do. It would have been easy if, it, if I were Jesus in that moment to say, excuse me, sir, I've got other business to attend to. It would have been easy when he said, come, my daughter's dying, and say, I'm really sorry. Potentially. But Jesus looks into this one who had, the eyes of this one who had been his opponent, this one who had perhaps been in conflict with him, and says, Let's go. I recognize the desperation in your eyes, and that's all that I need to see. That's all that I need to know to move me to a place of compassion and concern and care, and I will move to that place. All Jesus needs to know to the parents in the room is that our kids are hurting that our kids are in a desperate situation. And Jesus responds to the parents in the room. We can know that we can bring our, our burdens and our concerns for our children. This story tells us the, the heart cries that we have, perhaps, where we see one going this way or that way, or facing this or that challenge, or feeling this or that pressure, or whatever it may be that is a burden for us. This story tells us that Jesus compassionately moves to parents whose kids are heavy on their hearts. And I know that speaks to a large portion of us here today, no matter how old your kids may be at this point. To this one who is desperate, falling before him, not even knowing necessarily what all he needs, Jesus responds compassionately um, to, to Jairus. And and to the, to the bleeding woman, even as he's on his way to the healing of Jairus' daughter, to the bleeding woman, Jesus stops. Don't miss the detail. He doesn't feel the power and think to himself, well, that worked for somebody and simply keeps on going. Instead, he stops to pay attention and the bleeding woman becomes a perpetual reminder to all who would read this scripture that Jesus notices the isolated, that Jesus notices the outcast, that he sees the unseen, that he looks to those who have been pushed to the margins one way or another, and with a personal inviting extension of himself, reaches there to pull them toward himself. Jesus, to whoever he is, meeting and coming towards, moving forward to, is doing so with compassion. So much so, perhaps, with the bleeding woman that some have said that, uh, that, the mar that, that Jesus in this passage uh, reminds us and teaches us that the marginal of our society will always have a certain preferential status in the reign of God. 
Instead of protecting himself and his own well-being, Jesus is moving compassionately. I, they're not here today, so I can speak about them. But as I read this story, uh, I had better make sure they're not here. I, I, uh, um, I, I thought about Tom and Pam Glass. And, and Tom would, some of you have been a part of Tom and Pam's ministry in our church for the last number of years. You know, if you've been a part of that ministry, that Tom could tell you exactly how many meetings they've had and how many years they've been meeting, how many different people have come, which is literally in the hundreds to that Monday night meeting, how many meals have been served, how many kids have been fed. I mean, he's a statistician, the guy. But Tom and Pam have an incredible heart for the Lord. And if you've been a part of that Monday night group, you've experienced that firsthand. If you've not, you've likely experienced that firsthand as well. But it, the, 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 the essence of that Monday night meeting, the victorious life, the, the Monday night group, the, the, the many names that it has gone by over the years that started as a sort of a recovery group many, many years ago and then sort of transitioned to a, a support group and then to a Bible study so now it's just sort of a hodgepodge maybe of all of those things. It's a family. It's a community. It's, it's a place of, of shared life. And I've been privileged to be to a few of those meetings over the years and to witness and observe and experience uh, that and to hear many, many stories from Tom as to what happened last night. You'll never believe the meeting we had last night. Um, to hear the stories about how God has been at work. But it just, it made me think about in those reports, especially that I've gotten and I've heard from Tom, about the, the different ones. Some of you are in this room who have showed up, who were in a very difficult place, or who maybe even continue to be in a very difficult place. But, but in his unique way, Tom and Pam are like good cop, bad cop. I don't know how to explain them. They're just, you know, they, they just fire an eye. I don't know what it is. They, they go well together. It's not oil and water. They, they just, different Different people, but they go so well together. And to have heard the stories about a, a compassionate movement towards any who would come to that group, any who could potentially come to that group. In fact, if you haven't been to that group, I would, I would uh, guess that you have been invited at one point or another to that group. A movement of compassion. An eye to the margins, an openness to those who are in a particular place of, of pain or of uncertainty or of questioning, an awareness that we're all broken people moving towards a Savior who has the ability to, to do his transforming work in us. And Tom and Pam and all of those, many who are here this morning who are part of that group, have worked diligently and by the, I believe, the power of the Holy Spirit to create a context where there's compassion extended in such a way that, that, that healing is taking place, that people are invited and allowed to be just who they are. I, I don't think that Tom and Pam kind of sat around one day and just kind of you know, made this up. In fact, I would venture to say that Tom and Pam would say that their best ideas were, didn't work. 
that it was only as they watched the example of the Savior, the truly compassionate one, the one who moves forward in, in relationship and compassion towards people, did that ministry begin to have the kind of legs that it has had and continues to have in the life of our church. The, the reality that Jesus moves forward in compassion tells us at least, at least two things. It, it, tells us, it tells us this, that if you're, that, if, you're the, if you're the woman this morning, if you're, the, if, if you're Jairus, the one who comes with a desperate need, one that's perhaps known by everyone in the synagogue, known by the whole church, known by the whole community, one that, one that you're, is very evident, or one that is secretive and known only by those who have known you most intimately and have cast you aside, one that is very public or one that is very private in terms of your need. The message that Jesus moves forward in compassion reminds us that we are welcome to come and either fall before him on our knees or to, if, if, if all we can do is to sneak up behind him and reach for his garment, it tells us that Jesus compassionately responds to each of us in whatever the circumstance, whatever the place of need, whatever the the point of healing, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, whether it's something that, again, is very public or very intensely private, this compassionate Jesus invites us to come and to receive that compassion, that, that kindness. But it also tells us that we are to be like Jesus in that, that we are not only be the ones who are coming for that, but the ones who are going with that compassion to be the ones who are giving preferential treatment to those who are on the margins, to those who are just outside the, the bounds, perhaps, of normal society or, or our, our comfort zone, at least, to be open to what it might look like to offer the compassion of Jesus to those who are in great need that are all around us. Jesus not only moves in compassion, though, the, the real crux of the story is that he also moves in power. He also moves in power. It's one thing for Jesus to look at Jairus and to look at the woman and say, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a bad problem. I understand. And to express empathy towards them, which is welcome and important and good to, good to know and good to experience. But it's another thing for Jesus to be able to back up that em empathetic response with an act of power. For him to look at Jairus and say, that's right, let's go. And for him to Look at the woman and say, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. It's another thing for him to enter into the room with the parents and with the disciples and to say, Talitha, kum, get up, little girl. In your own vernacular, in our own language, in a simple invitation to rise up and live again. not a scientist, but it's fun for me to watch my kids do experiments or to hear about experiments that they're doing in school or to remember certain ones that I was a part of or to, to even watch some of the creations that get made out of children's church when the kids come out after church and to see some of the things that have happened. And it's interesting when certain things go together to make other things happen. Catalytic 
uh, items that are added to the mix so to create something that wasn't there before. And in both cases, for both Jairus and for the woman, it's their faith. Jesus says, it's your faith that's made you well. And I, I don't want to say that Jesus like misspoke because I know what he meant. I think I know what he meant. But I, I actually want to tell Jesus, actually, it was your power, Jesus, that made her well. But I think I understand what you meant, that it was her faith added into this mix that allowed your power to activate and to move into action in the life of this woman, in the life of this little girl. I think again about Corey Tim Boom, about her family gathering around. Their, their family had prayed for a hundred years. They had, they had prayer meetings before and after World War II for a hundred years for the Jewish people. Her father was so convinced and convicted to pray for the, for the, for the chosen people of God from Israel. It's said that they never once tried to convert any of their Jewish refugees to the Christian faith. They simply loved and lived and gave themselves. I think about the Ten Boom family, somehow the, the, the dad pulling everyone around and saying, uh, I, I just have this idea, family. I, there's, there's Jewish people in our community that are desperately in need. We're, we're going to open our home to them. And I don't know if he realized at the time and if he would have said these words, but, but along the way it would have become clear that we're going to open our homes and we're going to hide them at risk of our own very lives. And in fact, most of us will die because of our step of faith. But I think about the faith of this Ten Boom family and what that activated into the world in terms of the power of God at work. The power of God not only to, to save and to rescue and to heal, up to estimates are 800 different people alive post-World War II because of the efforts of the Ten Boom family, Jewish refugees and members, again, of the Dutch resistance. Up to 800 people alive because of that. The, the faith that activated the power of God in such a way that God could act and heal and rescue and save. Our invitation, friends, from this story is not only to receive and to recognize the compassionate movement of Jesus toward each of us and the, to follow him in that movement to those around us, but to recognize that, that our faith, both for our own needs and the needs of the world, in some beautiful and powerful, mystical way, activates the power of God to bring about the healing and saving and rescuing work that the kingdom is all about. These healings, you see, didn't happen all the time. But these healings and all of the healings in the ministry of Jesus were those that were pointing forward to the reality that someday when the kingdom comes in its fullness, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more bleeding. There will be no more isolation. There will be no more death. These healings pointed the people towards that reality. The power of God at work then giving a glimpse of what the power of God would be like in days to come. Can we, can we 
be open to the, the Jesus who comes to us in power? Can we have faith to see and faith to hear? Believing that in so doing, God's power may be activated in ways that we could never even imagine. I don't know what it is this morning, again, for you that you hold on to. I don't know what burden you carry for yourself or for others. I don't know what concern weighs heavy on our hearts today. I know that most of us, if we were to be honest, carry something there. The invitation is simply to be people who are seeing the compassionate Jesus moving towards us, the compassionate Jesus who has the power to do something about it, to, to be people then who are following him in, in ways that someday people would look back on and say valiant, are valiant. And to us, we would simply say obedient, <laughs> just following what we're seeing our Lord and Savior doing, believing in his compassion, believing in his power to heal and to transform. Today we get to come to the table of the Lord on this first Sunday of the month, and we get to receive the, the, the bread and the cup, the, the emblems and the reminders of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the, the symbols that represent for us and in beautiful ways become for us the grace of God that's been poured out, his body broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, realizing that in so doing, Jesus was making available all the resources of heaven for our life and for our salvation. And much like the woman when she was found out, we come to the table today with trembling hearts. And we come to the table with grateful hearts. For those of us who have experienced the salvation of God through his son, Jesus recognized just what it is that he has done for us. And all we can do is say thank you as we respond to that. Others here this morning who have not experienced that may, even in these moments, recognize and affirm that in fact Jesus was broken and his blood was shed for you and your response would be one of faith, to fall down at the feet of Jesus in a very humble and spiritual way. Whatever is the place of our life today. We come to the table with great expectation. We come to the table with great faith. We come to the table anticipating that his power will be poured out in us. I want to invite our worship team and our servers, if you'll come down here, let's pray. God, thank you so much for these stories that remind us compassionate Jesus, a powerful Jesus. And we're thankful in these moments that we can be both on the receiving end of that and on the going side of that. We're grateful that, that these are the kind of people that you're calling us and inviting us to be. As we come to the table this morning, as we come to receive this meal that you have made available to your disciples. We pray that in the receiving of the bread and in the drinking of the cup that we would experience the, the, the love of God at a deeply intense level, that we would tremble with the awareness and with the gratitude of what it is that you have done, what it is that you have made possible. 
Jesus, thank you that as you gathered your disciples that night, you, you, you broke the bread and you blessed it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you did the same with the cup, blessing it and passing it and saying, this is my bloodshed for forgiveness of your sins. Take and eat and take and drink all of this. And as you do, remember me. Jesus, in the midst of our, our personal places of suffering this morning, in the midst of our feelings perhaps of isolation or of uncertainty, of question, in the midst of our, our, our concern, our, the, the weight of burden for those around us perhaps, we, we pray again that we would be filled with the compassion of Jesus. And that as we respond in faith, even in these moments, we would be able to see your power begin to move in ways that we could never have imagined. Be with us now as we come. Be with us as we worship you in these moments, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.